You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. To James chapter 3. Uh, my name is Matt Tolander. If you don't know me, I get to serve on staff as the leadership development pastor here at Midtown, which is a tremendous privilege for me. And, uh, you know, if you're into things like church history or the church calendar, then you might know that today is Reformation Sunday. Anybody celebrating Reformation Sunday this morning? A few of us. A few of us. So, now it's always the Sunday before Halloween because October 31st is the day in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and launched the Protestant Reformation. And we're looking at this passage of Scripture this morning that's all about our words and just personally... I can't think about words or language uh, without thinking of another reformer, one of my heroes, uh, William Tyndale. And Tyndale, if you don't know, William Tyndale was the first person ever to translate the Bible from the original languages of Greek and Hebrew directly into English. Now, it had been translated before from Latin into English, but Tyndale was the first one to go directly from the original languages into English. And that translation was not sanctioned by the Church of England. In fact, at this time in history, the Roman Catholic Church in England would burn people alive for even owning the Bible in the English language. And so Tyndale was forced to go into exile and do his translating in the Netherlands and then smuggle these English translations back into his home country of England in bales of cotton. And eventually he was betrayed and he was taken into custody and he was executed. Now, why should you care about any of that? Here's why. Tyndale's translation of the New Testament and the portions of the Old Testament that he was able to complete uh, before he was executed formed the basis for the King James Version of the Bible, which in turn radically changed the way that the English language was spoken both in England and then consequently throughout the world. Here's Tyndale biographer David Danielle. He says, quote, in his Bible translations, Tyndale's conscious use of everyday words without inversions in a neutral word order and his wonderful ear for rhythmic patterns gave to English not only a Bible language, but a new prose. England was blessed as a nation in that the language of its principal book, as the Bible in English rapidly became, was the fountain from which flowed the lucidity, suppleness, and expressive range of the greatest prose thereafter. His craftsmanship with the English language amounted to genius. This was not merely a literary phenomenon. It was a spiritual explosion. Tyndale's Bible and writings were the kindling that set the Reformation on fire. So William Tyndale valued the Word of God, and he recognized that as long as it remained imprisoned in the Latin language, the corrupt church of England of that time would continue to oppress and exploit the illiterate masses who couldn't access the Bible because, A, there weren't that many copies of the Bible floating around, and B, they couldn't read Latin even if they managed to get their hands on a copy of it. So Tyndale, who was probably one of only a handful of people on the entire European continent who knew the Hebrew language, applied his linguistic skills to translating scripture from the original Hebrew and Greek into English. And Tyndale's translation was so skillful 
that when the Church of England finally did authorize an English translation, they took over 90% of his work and imported it into their translation, the authorized version, which we know as the King James. And Tyndale's language persists in Bible translations even to today. I just want to give you just a quick sampling of English phrases from Tyndale's translation that you will recognize and just like think for each one of these, just think for a moment, no one had ever phrased these phrases this way before. Tyndale was the very first. See if any of these sound familiar to you. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be merciful to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Tyndale verbatim. There were shepherds abiding in the field. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You had no idea that whenever you recite the Lord's Prayer in English, you're quoting Tyndale. The signs of the times, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, fight the good fight. Now, according to David Danielle, here's, here's a quote from his biography. The list of such near proverbial phrases is endless. Newspaper headlines still quote Tyndale, though unknowingly, and he has reached more people than even Shakespeare. So all the countless people over the course of the last several hundred years who have read the Bible in English and comprehended its meaning and applied its truth to their life and benefited from its wisdom owe just a tremendous debt of gratitude to William Tyndale, who loved God's word so much that he literally gave his life to put it into the hands of ordinary people and to put God's word into words that we could understand. Like the influence of Tyndale's words cannot possibly be overstated. Like words are, words are powerful. Tyndale's words were powerful. And God is a God of words, and he's a God of language. He loves words. He loves language. And he's gifted all of us with this incredible gift to be able to communicate with words and with language. And when we use our words and our speech the way that God intended for us to use them, they can be a massive, massive force for good in the world. But on the other side, too, if we're careless or if we're reckless with our speech, then the effects can be an equally powerful force for evil. So the passage we're going to look at this morning in James is about the power of our words, and it happens to be the longest sustained teaching in the entire Bible on the subject of our speech. So let me pray, and then I'll read our text for this morning, and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, I need your help now to, to effectively communicate this word from James. I pray that you would now give us all ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to what you have to say and give us a, a spirit of obedience as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. 
Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So if you're familiar with your Bible, you've, you've probably noticed during this series through James how much of James's instruction seems to be either a reiteration or an exposition of principles from Jesus' teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And then additionally, we see numerous parallels between what James communicates in his letter and the book of Proverbs. And one of the areas in which this is most important is in this way that James talks about our speech. Now, this passage that we're looking at this morning is not the only place where James talks about uh, our speech. Besides uh, the references in these 12 verses, there are at least 20 other references to speech in the letter, and they include instructions regarding like the way we speak to one another, and how we speak to God in prayer, and how we speak in response to our circumstances, and how we speak about God and about others, and even about ourselves. You'll remember in, in chapter 1, James says, uh, you should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen and slow to speak. And if there was ever a culture that got that absolutely backwards, it's the culture that we live in right now. And all you have to do is like log on to Twitter and just see what is going on. It's horrible. I love Twitter anyway. I can't quit. <laughs> now, why is speech so important to James? I think there's two practical reasons that I'll give up front, and then we'll explore it deeper in the text. The first reason is that our words give outward expression to our inner being. Our words give outward expression to our inner being. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 12. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Now listen to James in our passage this morning in verses 11 and 12. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So you see how James is taking a point from Jesus? You see how he's saying virtually the same thing? And then the second reason words are so important to James is that, that words can have serious consequences. Words can have very serious consequences. They, they leave our mouths in a split second, and the effects can last 
a lifetime. Look at, at Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Now listen to James in our passage this morning in verse 5. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So we see that, that James's focus on words in, in, in this letter is not just an idiosyncrasy of his teaching. He's drawing from this wealth of rich, rich teaching on the subject of words and speech from Proverbs all the way to Jesus at his time. Now, before we dive even deeper into our text this morning, I, I want you to see how it fits into the context of the flow of James's letter. So the point of this letter is spiritual maturity. It's spiritual maturity, especially in the midst of and as a result of trials and suffering. So James's primary concern is to explain to his readers how to walk in wisdom and how to become spiritually mature. So in the first half of chapter 1, James explains that spiritual maturity develops through our response to suffering, the way that we persevere and the way that we, we go about the process of suffering can have the result at the end that we'll become spiritually mature if we do it in the right way. And in the second part of chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 2, James discusses how spiritual maturity is enhanced by our response to the Word of God. And then beginning in our passage this morning, James is explaining that spiritual maturity is evidenced by how we use our tongue. Spiritual maturity is evidenced by how we use our tongue. Let's dive in now and go a little bit deeper. Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So James's first instruction is this preemptive application of everything that he's about to say in this passage. So words are inherently powerful in and of themselves, but when they come from someone who has a platform or who has some kind of presumed authority, they take on extra weight. And so in this specific example, James is warning his readers that if they aspire to teach people about the things of God, then they need to recognize that there's a higher standard of judgment that comes along with it. So that, that may not be immediately applicable to all of you today, but it was applicable to me this week. So even now, I'm aware that like I will have to answer to God for how I communicate this truth from his word right now in this moment that I'm in. And I don't want to be someone who, well, and, and more than that, not only will I have to answer to God for how I communicate it, I will have to answer to God for how well I actually apply this in my own life. Because I don't want to be someone who just like gets up here and just peddles unapplied truth and be someone who explains better than I obey. But even with this warning in verse 1, James reminds us in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. I just praise God that that verse is in there. That's, like, that's underlined in my Bible. We all stumble in many ways. So right away, we can all recognize, me included, and we can admit that like none of us are batting a thousand when it comes to our speech. None of us has perfect consistency in saying the right thing at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons. And so before I start thinking about like the other people in my life and how they're doing with their speech, I have to recognize like this is my problem too. We all stumble in many ways. James goes on, anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now the word perfect there in verse 2 stands out to me. 
because it's a little bit confusing because he just said, we all stumble in many ways, and then he says, anyone who can control their tongue and is never at fault in what they say is perfect. So what does he mean by perfect? Is he suggesting that perfection is achievable in the area of our speech? What does he mean, perfect? I think the easiest way to determine James's intended meaning of this word perfect in chapter 3, verse 2, is uh, to look at how he uses this word elsewhere in the letter. And the word that's translated perfect in our verse this morning, in, in verse 2, is the Greek word teleos, and sometimes it's translated finished, uh, perfect, complete, but James uses this word in a very unique way. The same word occurs twice in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, which is the theme verse of the book of James. So James says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. There's the first use. So that you may be perfect, there's the second use, and complete lacking in nothing. Now, I, I quoted those verses just now in the, in the New American Standard translation because that translation, uh, it, it makes the uh, repeated use of teleos more apparent because it renders the word twice in the same verse as perfect. Now I want to give it to you in the NIV because when it comes to teleos in chapter 1, verse 4, the NIV translators do just a fantastic job of conveying its meaning. So here's just verse 4 in the New International Version. Let perseverance finish, first use, teleos, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Mature. So taking this into consideration, I understand James to mean in chapter 3, verse 2, that mature people control their tongues. Perfection in the area of speech may not be achievable in this lifetime. Perfection in a lot of areas is unachievable in this lifetime. But James's point is that, no, you might not be perfect, but you can be mature. You can be a spiritually mature person who keeps a tight rein on their tongue. And so if you were waiting for it, here's just a one-sentence summary of this morning's message. So it, you can just write this down and then check out for the rest if you want. One-sentence summary of this morning's message. Tongue mastery is a measure of maturity. Tongue mastery is a measure of maturity. You want to know, am I spiritually mature? The answer is literally right under your nose. Tongue mastery is a measure of maturity. Let's, let's move forward. James is also going to explain in the next couple of verses that the tongue is disproportionately powerful. It's disproportionately powerful. Verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And this is why I just love teaching on James, is because like this passage just teaches itself. Like I don't have a better illustration for this than the one that James, the, the two, the horse and the, and the ship. I don't have better illustrations than that for this idea. Um, I remember the first time I ever rode a horse uh, solo. I was like 10, maybe 11 years old. I had to climb a stepladder to get on it. And uh, so once I got up there, the rancher guy gives me the rundown. He's like, kick means go, back means stop, left means left, right means right. And that was all the instruction that I got, like my very first time riding a horse. I probably weighed like 80 pounds. You know, I was chubby kids. I probably weighed like 90 pounds. <laughs> okay, how much does an adult horse weigh? Like 1,000 pounds? I had no business being up on a 1,000-pound animal as an 80-year-old kid. But sure enough, like I... 
Oh, that's an 80 year old kid. I love it. Anybody else tired this morning? <laughs> I had no business being up on a thousand pound animal as an 80 pound kid. But sure enough, like I gave it a little kick and it went and I pulled back and it stopped. I pulled it to the left and it went left. I pulled it to the right and it went right. That was it. Massive animal that weighed 10 times as much as me, completely under my control. And it's the same way with the tongue. It's a small part of the body, but it wields so much power over people. And James also mentions the rudder of a ship. When, when I was in middle school, I went to a summer camp on Lake Travis, and I got to take some sailing lessons. And we had these little, like, two-person sailboats. And they didn't have rudders, but they did have dagger boards. So if you don't know, a dagger board is this removable plank that goes on the bottom of the ship, and it creates leverage with the wind so that the ship can sail upwind. And if you take the dagger board off, the ship will just get, like, blown off to the side. And this one day, uh, my sailing partner and I, we decided that we were going to have a little extra fun, and so we just decided to play a little game. And we would, like, sail up next to somebody else's boat, and I would hop out of our boat and then, like, stealthily swim over to their boat, and I would get underneath it and take the dagger board and then take it with me and come and put it back in our boat. And I managed to get three dagger boards, and then we just sat in our boat, and we just watched as these three other boats just like slowly drifted and drifted away from us, just carried by the wind, until they're about like 150 yards away from the rest of us. And James says the tongue is like that. Now, a, a controlled tongue, a controlled tongue can overcome great obstacles, it can harness the power of the wind. It can harness adversity. It can overcome great obstacles. A sailboat without a rudder or a dagger board, though, is powerless, and it gets blown around by the wind. And that's what a person is like who doesn't control their tongue. So the tongue's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. It's disproportionately powerful. Now James is going to explain that the tongue can be incredibly destructive. Look at the, the second half of verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So here's what this looks like on, a, on a, a grand scale, on a corporate scale. If you pay attention to human history, both like the highest heights and the most depraved moments in human history are marked by the same thing, rhetoric. Rhetoric. How, how was Hitler able to gather the Nazi party and set out to take over the world and commit genocide against the Jews? Rhetoric. Why did, why did the churches in Germany at that time so easily capitulate to Hitler's final solution? Well, because many of them were Lutheran, and Martin Luther was an anti-Semite who wrote really horrible things about Jews. And even more than 400 years later after he wrote those words, the hate toward Jews that was in his heart that made its way out of his heart through his mouth and his pen had lasting impact and consequences in human history. And that's what James means when he says the tongue is set on fire by hell. Because the tongue is the primary way that evil in the hearts of people makes its way out into the world. And even a small spark 
can start a massive, massive fire. But if that's true in the negative sense, then that means it's also true in the positive sense, right? So, I mean, the, if, words, if words can be so powerful a vehicle for evil, then surely they must also be an equally powerful force for good if they're used in the right way. And the first example I thought of is Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know if there's ever been a communicator who was as indispensable to their movement as Martin Luther King Jr. was to the civil rights movement in this country. And yesterday, while I was working on this talk, I took a break. I reread his letter from a Birmingham jail. Anybody read that? Have you read it recently? Google that and get online and read that this week. Toward the end of the letter, uh, he diagnoses a problem with the way the American church uses our collective voice as the church, and it shook me to my bones yesterday to read these words because they are exactly as true today as they were 56 years ago when he wrote them. So here's Martin Luther King Jr. letter from a Birmingham jail, quote, so often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is, it is an arch defender of the status quo Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church, and he's writing in, in April 1963, if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I read those words, and I look back on the fruit of 50 years of culture wars and the moral majority and political maneuvering, and I see exactly what he predicted happening in our culture today. The church dismissed out of hand by the broader culture, losing credibility rapidly. Our words matter. They matter. They matter on an individual level, but they also matter on a collective level. Our collective voice as the church of Jesus Christ in our culture matters, maybe more than ever before in the midst of the cultural storm that we're in. But let's bring it back to the personal dimension now. Look again at verses 5 and 6. James is just, he's so insightful, and he just paints this picture so effectively. Like when I read verses 5 and 6, I don't just understand what he means. I feel what he means. Because I have experienced this in my life. I can think back to moments in my life when someone said something to me that was so hurtful that it felt like I had been set on fire. And maybe some of you have experiences like that too. I would guess many, if not all of you, could relate to that. You can think back to something that was said to you on the playground, or you can think back to something your parents said, or something like an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend said, or something your spouse said, or even something one of your kids said. Some of you are even like me, and you can think back to something a pastor said to you that just wounded you for life. Our tongues are so powerful that the words that just take a split second to leave our mouth can inflict 
pain on people that can last a lifetime. And that is a startling reality. And it's even more startling when you consider that our tongues are plagued with just incredible inconsistency. That's the point of the next few verses. Look at verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. Now, the word praise there in the Greek is eulogia. It's where we get our word eulogy. It means to speak well of or to speak larger of. Other translations will translate it in this verse, bless. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise or blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So James speaks to the incredible power of these spiritual forces of blessing and cursing. And even if you couldn't offer like a spiritual or a theological definition this morning of blessing and cursing, I know that all of us in this room have experienced being blessed by someone's speech or being cursed by it. Because even if you're not a Jesus person, and even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I still think you'd say you've experienced being blessed or cursed. And I don't just mean that someone said like a naughty word to you, or someone said a nice word to you. It's more than that, because sometimes someone says something to you, and it just sticks with you, and it buries itself in your heart, and it begins to shape you. It begins to affect you. It begins to shape the way you think about yourself, or it begins to shape the way you think about other people, or it begins to shape the way you think about God, either for better or for worse. And our words are loaded with spiritual significance. And I would love to just go on and on and on about these ideas of blessing and cursing, but for the sake of time, I'll just elaborate on some of the very specific ways that we curse people with our speech. Because I don't believe in spells, okay, but I do believe in curses, We curse people when we speak to them in a way that crushes their spirit or when we speak to them in a way that that causes them to feel shame or when we speak to them in a way that is dishonest or when we speak to them in a way that is reckless or in a way that leads them into a way of thinking about themselves or thinking about others or thinking about God that is not the way that God intended for them to think. We curse people when, when our words influence them to believe something that isn't true. We risk inflicting a wound on a person that may never, ever heal. That's how powerful our words are. So, so married people, like when you're in conflict and you're arguing with your, with your husband or your wife, be so careful with your words. Because in your anger, you might just haul off and say something maybe in, in the moment you didn't even mean, but you can inflict irreparable damage to their soul. Parents, when you're disciplining your children, don't be reckless. I mean, be firm, be patient, be clear, be deliberate, but don't be reckless because you don't want your kids growing up with extra wounds because mom and dad couldn't control their tongue or their tone. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. One of those two realities is going to define your verbal legacy as a person. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise, we speak the way that God intended us to speak to one another, it brings healing. 
But we also curse people with our silence. When people need to hear words of affection or words of affirmation from us and we withhold it, we curse people that way. Maybe some of you experienced this growing up. I can't tell you how many like men's Bible study discussion groups I've sat in and heard men say over and over and over, my dad hardly ever told me he loved me. My dad hardly ever told me he was proud of me. I have heard that countless times from men in the church. Here's John Ortberg on this subject. Quote, I used to think cursing someone meant swearing at them or putting a hex on them. So it was pretty easy to avoid because I don't swear much or do hexes. But I realized how wrong I'd been. You can curse someone with a raised eyebrow. You can curse someone with a shrugged shoulder. I've seen a husband curse his wife by leaving just the tiniest delay before saying, of course I love you. The better you know someone, the more subtly and cruelly you can curse them. Our words are powerful. Whether they're the words that we ought not to say, but we say them anyway, or whether they're the words that we should be saying, that people desperately need to hear from us that never leave our mouth. Our words are powerful, and our silence is powerful as well. Now, James closes this, this section on the tongue with this incredibly convicting illustration. Can both fresh water, verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So according to James, mature people speak in a mature way and immature people speak in an immature way. No one is perfect. We all stumble in many ways in our speech, but on the whole, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with this? Because tongue mastery is a measure of spiritual maturity. You want to know if you're spiritually mature. How well are you controlling your tongue? James is saying the exact same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 12 and Luke 6. The tongue speaks what's in the heart, always. And it's incredibly convicting, but at the same time, just think about like what a good gift and an amazing gift this is from God. Because you don't have to wonder if you have an angry heart. You don't have to wonder if you have a jealous heart. Your words reveal it to you. And to other people. So if you're always snapping or you're always exploding, you have an angry heart. Some of you are already doing the self-justification in your heads. I don't have an angry heart. I was was tired that day. I was just stressed out. I was hangry. I I didn't eat. Yeah, all of that led to anger that exploded out of your heart, through your mouth, and landed on somebody else. You have an angry heart. Just for the sake of helping some of us feel less alone this morning, like how many of you have purposefully tried to wound another person with your words? Anybody willing to admit that? Yeah, me too. Like you, you knew if you said it, it was going to hurt, and you knew it was going to cause them pain, and you knew it was going to crush them, and you wanted to crush them, and so you went ahead and you said it anyway. Or how about this one? Like, some of us are too timid to just go that far and just absolutely crush somebody, and so we'll just do this thing where we just, like, refuse to enter into their celebration, and so, you know, someone gets excited about something, we just want to take it away from them. Like, oh, I just got a golden retriever. Yeah, you know, personally, I'd never get a dog that sheds that much. (laughs) 
Like, check out the new Silverado. Yeah, you know, I'm more of a Ford guy. We do this to people. Oh, you went to the football game? That's great. Where'd you sit? Oh, can you even see the field from there? I might as well just stay at home and watch it on TV, get a better view of the game. What does it tell you about your heart that you just like passive aggressively have to take people down a notch? Or maybe this one. Why are you, why are you always giving people your resume? Why are you always at every opportunity trying to draw attention to your accomplishments or always dropping names and bragging about your connections? What's in your heart? What are your words telling you? If you're constantly shading the truth and using words to deceive people and paint just like the ideal picture of yourself and curate your image so you can manipulate people and manage and control your reputation and what people think about you, you have a lying heart. You have a deceitful heart. A proud heart. What about social media? Do we dare go there this morning? Are you the Facebook comments debater? (laughs) I've been the Facebook comments debater. Not usually because I go seek it out because I'll post something on Facebook and then the the Facebook comment debaters will then get in my comments and then I try to engage them and then I become the Facebook comment debater, which I loathe so much. Argumentative heart. That's what that says about me. Or are you the wannabe Instagram influencer? Lots of people have been asking about my skincare routine. No, they haven't. (laughs) They weren't. Now listen, is that that vanity in your heart? the, The way we use social media, that tells you something about what's in your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the the thumbs tweet. Uh, I know some of you guys are going to go look at my social media like at lunch to see just how big of a hypocrite I am, and that's okay. Uh, at Matt Tolander on Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> I I will follow you back. Look, if you just listen, if all you, if, if you just take the time to just stop and listen to your own words, they will tell you very very plainly and clearly what's happening inside. They will. I was, I was so convicted by this this week because I, like, I don't often blow up on people in anger, but I'm not off the hook because like, even in the last few days, I have caught myself thinking about this very specific situation from my past with someone who hurt me like really, really badly. And I've caught myself just like, like in the car the other day, driving home from the office, I caught myself just like ruminating and fantasizing about having an argument with this person and, and, and seriously, fantasizing about screaming in their face all of the hurtful things that I wish I would have said before we walked out of each other's lives for good and just tearing them limb from limb with my words. And I could do it too. And can I just like confess something to you this morning? I, I have hate in my heart for this person. That's what the Holy Spirit hit me upside the head with this week. I have an angry heart. I have a vengeful heart. There's bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart. And I know I do because the words I wish I could say to this person reveal it. Anyone else been there? You just replay the argument in your mind. You just fantasize about being able to say all the like biting and hurtful things that you didn't think of until later. Anyone with me this morning on that? Anyone willing to be honest? The Holy Spirit just kicked my butt with that this week absolutely worked me over. And I had to tell you about it because James says teachers could judge more strictly. So I like, might as well just put it out there in the open. I have work to do this week. 
we know what's in our hearts, so it comes pouring out of our mouths effortlessly. Effortlessly. The ability to communicate with language is given to us by God. And it's such an incredible gift to be able to communicate with people using language. Here's, here's Chuck Colson, quote, Without the tongue, no mother could sing her baby to sleep at night. No ambassador could adequately represent our nation. No teacher could stretch the minds of students. No commander could lead us fighting troops into battle. No attorney could defend the truth in court. No pastor could comfort troubled souls. No complicated, controversial issue could ever be discussed and solved. Our entire world would be reduced to unintelligible grunts and shrugs. Seldom do we pause to realize just how valuable this strange muscle in our mouths really is. End quote. God has given us the tongue with all of its power and all of its disproportionate influence so that we would use it to bless the people around us. And when we use our words to bless people and to introduce healing and comfort or encouragement into people's lives, we are reflecting the character of God to them, a God who created this world and everything in it with what? Words. He spoke it into being. A God who spoke words through prophets in the Old Testament. A God who came to us as the living word, Jesus Christ, and who inspired human authors through the Holy Spirit to record his written word and who has gifted linguists and translators like William Tyndale to take it from the Greek and the Hebrew and to translate it into so many other languages so that more and more people can access God directly through scripture, for themselves, without having to rely on a pope or a pastor or anyone else to tell them what the Bible says. You don't have to wonder. You can open it up and read it in your language. God loves words. He cares about words. It matters to God how we speak. Because when we do, we unleash spiritual power that is either going to create or destroy and it's either going to heal or wound, and it's either going to bless or curse people. Tongue mastery is an evidence of spiritual maturity. If you want to know how spiritually mature you are, the answer is right under your nose, literally. You know exactly how mature you are when you just listen to your own words that come out of your mouth. So... I'll invite Sean and Katie back up. We're going to move now, as we always do, into a time of communion. And as I was thinking about the life of Christ and how Jesus used his words, I was reminded of something that Peter said to Jesus in John 6. And Jesus' teaching at this point was starting to get a little bit more uh, divisive, and so people were turning away and stopped following him. And Jesus looks at the 12 disciples, and he says, do you want to leave too? And Peter looks back at Jesus, and he, he answers him in John 6, 68, and he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'm so struck by Peter's observation that Jesus had the words of eternal life. Jesus' teaching, as recorded in the New Testament, is 
the guide to how to live a blessed life, a life of meaning, a life of beauty and significance and truth and love. And not only did Jesus teach us how to live that life, he lived that life perfectly. Jesus said his teaching, bless those who curse you. And he did it. He hung on the cross, naked and bleeding to death. He looked down at the men who put him there and he blessed them, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But not only did Jesus bless those who cursed them, he went even further and he became, the Apostle Paul says, Galatians 3, he became a curse for us. Here's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So if you put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then I invite you this morning to to come to the table. We have two here and, and two in the back. And I invite you to take this bread, which symbolizes Christ's body broken for you, and to take this cup, which symbolizes his blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And I want to encourage you, before you eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, just take a moment and just reflect on your life and think back to a moment. You might not even have to think back that far, but think back to a moment when you know that you cursed someone with your words. And I want you to just sit in that moment for you, with, in your memory this morning. I want you to think about the pain that it caused. I want you to think about the damage that you did. And then once you've done that, I want you to also remember that Jesus Christ became a curse for you. That he has already forgiven you for all of the ways that you've misused your words. We all stumble in many ways. And praise God that even though we all fall short of perfection when it comes to our tongue, forgiveness is offered in the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us. Let me pray for us. And then the tables will be open. And we have the, the gaddies are in the back there, and I'll be back there as well if you need someone to pray with you this morning. Let me, let me pray for all of us now. Lord, thank you for the gift of, of language. Thank you for the ability to, to communicate with one another and to give expression to our inward beings. It's so powerful and it's so meaningful. And we, just, we want to be people who use our words to bless other people and not to curse them. We want our words to be a force of healing and not destruction. So God, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you just, would you convict us of sin in this area and, and just make it really clear to us the things that, that we need to, to work on. Teach us how to listen to our words. Help us be receptive when other people tell us something about the way we speak. We want to use this gift the way that you intended for us to use it. And we need your help. We need grace to fill in the gap for all of the ways that we stumble and fall short. We need it to strengthen us also 
in our application. So, Father, we ask you to be gracious to us. Grant us that discipline and that strength to obey and to harness the power of words and use it for blessing. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.